Hello, and welcome to SG Squared. Steve Gladen, the global pastor of small groups from Saddleback Church, pulls from his over 25 years of experience to encourage and equip listeners like you to lead small group ministry. In this episode, we're going to be hearing from Dr. Bill Donahue as he's speaking at a small group conference at Saddleback Church. Bill Donahue has decades of small group experience, both practical and academic, as he is also a professor and has written many books on small groups. Today, he's going to be walking us through creating an environment of spiritual growth for your church. So let's listen and learn together. I'm Bill Donahue, and look forward to uh, sharing some time with you about how to create an environment for spiritual growth in groups. And... Um, lead, like many of you, a group uh, on Friday mornings, and I'm, in, I'm involved in a neighborhood community, which is uh, something Randy Frazee talked a little bit about or hinted at or described as he told his story yesterday, and uh, Randy and I work very closely together. It seems like when people see us teach or hear us that maybe we're kind of in competition, we're not. We work very much together in birthing communities and within those birthing small groups, and it's a transition time for us at our church in trying to do that. So uh, we're having a lot of fun trying to uh, put a new model in place. So today we're going to talk about what it means to create, as best we can from our side of it, uh, an environment of spiritual growth, an environment conducive to that in a small group. And we are primarily environmentalists. That's really kind of what we are. Uh, Paul said, you know, I planted, Apollos watered, and God caused the growth. So there's this sense that that we don't really cause anything in the way of growth to happen, but obviously we are responsible as hosts, as leaders, to craft environments and to invite people into those environments. Now, I wish I had gotten this when I was a small group leader, but I did not um, in my first group. My first small group was actually a pretty amazing experience. Uh, I had come to faith in Christ, and about a year and a half later, having been in a group, someone said, you should lead one. And so I picked four people that I knew, uh, a couple of them were people I played high school football with. It was three guys. One was a new Christian. One was what I would call a nominal Christian. I wasn't sure where he was. And one was a seeker, a non-Christian who had questions and was asking questions about the faith. And I thought, what a great start. And so I gathered these three people and me together, and we formed the core of a brand new group. And I just have to tell you, by God's mercy and God's grace, in six weeks, I was able to grow that group to one. And uh, it really was God's mercy and grace for the participants uh, because I was the one left. And I had a great quiet time uh, that last sixth meeting. I thought of writing a book, how to turn your group into a quiet time kind of thing, but I think that's, that's a big deal. And so it was very frustrating to me, and I couldn't understand why. Why did they not want to come back? Why did they not feel like this was a great environment? After all, I had given them a classic curriculum. It had all the blanks for them to fill in. I asked them to fill in the blanks. They filled them in. I asked them the questions when they came. I made them do their homework. I said they had to be on time and then leave on time. Why wouldn't you want to be part of that? Well, the reality was um, I didn't understand what that environment was to truly be about. And so I've had to learn that over the years, and God has truly been gracious. Um, but I realized as I look back, I made a couple classic errors. 
And the first error was that I really didn't understand what it meant to create this kind of environment and what it really meant to have a growth environment. I was confused about some things. And the first thing that we're going to put up that you can see on the side screen, and they're in your handout, the PowerPoint will simply guide us along. It's not new info. But if you are experiencing post-lunch syndrome and you depart for a few moments when you come back, look at the screens and you'll see where we are. Uh, I always encourage people, fold your hands and put your head down if you're going to sleep. At least you look spiritual. Some people. All right. Uh, the first error was I didn't understand the difference between having a meeting and building a family. Having a meeting and building a family, as you can see on your notes. And there is a comparison here between the two that I want to explain because here's what I discover. I ask people, I say, tell me about your group. And they say, it meets Tuesday nights at 7 and we're studying Romans. You just described a meeting to me. Now, if you'd asked Jesus to describe his group, I don't think he would have gone about it that way. I think he would have said, well, let's start with Peter. First of all, man, Peter, he's an amazing person. You know, he's excited. First he's in, then he's out, then he's in. But he's a great person. He's a great heart. And I remember one night at his mother-in-law's home, we healed people till midnight. I mean, you should have seen what the community was like. Oh, and let me tell you about Andrew. He's like a little puppy dog. <laughs> you know, he's just this young Christian and... And he'd go down this story, and I think he'd just say, oh, you want me to talk about my little community? Well, how much time do you have? Because he would not describe a meeting. He would describe a relational community. I'm using the term a family. And so here's some distinctions between the two. A family or a meeting is more about structure, and a family focuses more on nurture. It's not that they don't have structure, but it's a nurturing environment. In a structured meeting, we have time for learning and specific focus for the meeting. Time to talk, time not to talk. You know, no one asks, when does your family meet? That's just, that would be odd. If you said to someone, you know, my family meets Tuesdays from 7 to 9. Be odd. Because it's not a meeting, it's a relationship. So the nurture side is more about process. How are we growing together? Supporting each other. Supporting each other through times of pain and loss and being there for each other. So there's a distinction there. Uh, as you can see, a meeting is an event. A family is a relationship. A meeting is interested more in length. And a family, I think, or a community, more about the depth of their experience. You know, in a meeting, we're thinking about beginning to end and how do we get through the meeting and the components. And in the family, it's not so much beginning to end as it is what kind of depth are we experiencing as a family? What kind of relationship? Are we a mile wide and an inch deep, or are we really growing together as a family? To compare the two, a meeting is more about what we study. A family is about more about what we learn. It's a learning community. I want my group to be a learning community, not just a studying community. Studies about content. Learning is... You know, they say all learning is the result of failed expectations. You know, you hear great content or a theory, you go out and you try it, it doesn't work. That's where you learn. You go out to hit a golf ball and you expect it to go straight and that doesn't happen, you learn or you should. Or that's going to happen a lot. But it's in that moment of experience that you discover, am I a learner? And so that's what the family or community side should be about. And then meetings tend to be closed. You don't like someone to come in 20 minutes into a meeting, an hour into a meeting, and break it up. You know, if you have a meeting in an office environment, you know, you know, you got some work to get done, and someone just shows up, hey, you know, it just disrupts everything. But it's hard to interrupt a family, a community. 
So this whole idea of being a community is what I want to make sure you understand. And I think you get that conceptually, but I wanted to compare these two because I think as group leaders, many of us, or even as those who lead group leaders, we think in terms of meetings. I'll ask people to describe their group ministry and they'll tell me when the group meetings are for their groups. And that's a piece of it, but that's not the whole thing. And so we have this bent to events, if you will, these meetings that take place, and that's the only thing we care about. So I focus on this more communal aspect, and uh, I like one of my favorite writers is Jean Vanier, uh, who uh, wrote the book Community and Growth. I highly recommend it. And though his background is Catholic, and there's some Catholic theology in there, I think you would gain much if you're not you know, tuned into that from a lot of what he says, probably 90% of what he says, about how to connect to one another in community. He says, a loving community is attractive, and a community which is attractive is by definition welcoming. It's a welcoming community. A community which is closed can become stifling and suffer from dissension and envy and may cease to be alive. Love can never be static. A human heart is either progressing or regressing. If it's not becoming more open, it's closing and withering spiritually. A community which refuses to welcome, whether through fear or weariness or insecurity, a desire to cling to comfort, or just because it's fed up with visitors, is dying spiritually. So he says communities are open and they're alive and they're organic and they're vibrant. Within communities you have meetings, and that's the way I'd like you to see groups. That there are set, focused, catalytic meetings within the context of a broader communal life. And the degree that you can have those two working together I think will bring the kind of environment you want for life change. So my first error was not understanding the difference between these two uh, environments, as it were. The second one was not understanding informational versus transformational use of the text of Scripture. I'm not going to go into this long because there's other workshops on this. I think the Be Still workshop is focusing on how to use Scripture and meditate on it through Lectia Divina and some of these disciplines. But there is this sense as we gather groups together, what is the role of truth and how do we approach the Bible? And I want to compare these two because this was the second big error I meant. I had employed the informational approach versus a transformational approach to the Bible. I had a teacher who said, uh, you know, what we need in this world are more disillusioned people. I thought, maybe more tax-paying people, maybe more responsible people, but more disillusioned people? And he said, yeah, people who've had their illusions dissed. Because we tend to operate in a certain frame of reference. Some call it a paradigm. Some call it a way of thinking. And we tend to approach the text in an informational way. What does it say? How can I use it to fix something in my life? It's not a bad thing, it's just sometimes it's the only way we approach it. And so let me compare, again, informational not being bad, but just can we move beyond it to more transformational experiences around the text and around the living word, the author of the text. So in this comparison, I, I, I have a couple of things, you know, just you can see them on your sheet and we'll roll them up on the screen as I talk through them. Uh, the difference in quantity versus quality. Quantity asks, you know, are we there yet? It's a famous question from your kids. Are we there yet? It's interested in completing the journey, getting through the Bible in a year. Not a bad discipline. Just the, the emphasis there is on getting through the quantity. The quality approach says, how long do we stay? So we used to love about my kids is, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? And then we'd get there, and then they'd say, do we have to leave? Do we have to leave? 
because they like being there. And sometimes I feel that with the Bible. We'll get into a text that's very rich and very deep. But if we're on a quantity approach, it's sort of like, sorry, got to leave there now and move on to the next spot. And people are saying, wait a minute, there's a deep well here I wanted to drink from. It's, ah, sorry, but we're moving ahead. And that's the tension you face with the informational versus transformational sort of view of Scripture. We know that truth does not always uh, mean the amount of knowledge that we have because knowledge can puff up, the Bible tells us. So it's not a bad thing, so please hear me. I'm, I'm comparing these to kind of go kind of beyond the informational so that we don't just live there, but we tend to get sort of stuck there. Second thing is it's linear versus holistic. We march through Genesis to Revelation. I like to say we're jazzed by Genesis, excited by Exodus, lost in Leviticus, numbed by numbers and duped in Deuteronomy. We just get lost along the way somehow. I mean, people start these Bible reading programs, and you know we did it as a church. We, had, we were all doing it together, and somewhere in book four, five, or six there, it started to drop off pretty quickly. And some of that's a discipline issue, and I'm not saying it's a bad thing to do this. Remember that. What I am saying is, if you're driven by everything has to be linear, just because the Bible's books were put together in a linear fashion doesn't mean it has to be read that way. You know, you've studied history. You know things that are taking place in 1st, 2nd Kings, and, and, and those areas are, there's Psalms written about that, and so it's good to bounce back and forth between those two. As you're going through the book of Acts, it's good to read some of the epistles that Paul wrote through his journey in Acts. Because they're not linear. It's this full narrative that's going on. And so to simply do the linear kind of approach can kind of cramp things. The holistic view allows us to look at the whole person, the whole story, and connect it to the text that we're looking at. So that was another insight for me at the time. By the way, a, a book that really helped me with this was Shaped by the Word. Shaped by the Word by Robert Mulholland. Shaped by the Word. You could Google it or Amazon or whatever you do to find stuff. Um, but he goes through this informational versus transformational. I'm summarizing some of his thinking and some other things that I've seen and used myself. Uh, what's our attitude? It can be more critical, and I mean critical not in a negative sense, but to critique. The informational approach tends to be critical like a scientist is critical, where the heart toward the transformational approach tends to be a little more, you know, I'm not in control here. I'm, I'm going to be a little more humble with the text. And so we tend to be skeptical and to analyze and to dissect versus to experience and to open ourselves up and say, okay, I'm not... I don't know what you're saying here, God. I just need to have an open heart and to listen to you. I, I'm not pretending to want to tear all this apart yet. I want to meet you first. So that's a little bit of a shift. Individual versus communal. Uh, I like to say this. You know, learn to study the Bible for yourself. Just don't study it by yourself. Learn to study it for yourself. Learn to glean truth from it. Learn to read it and use a commentary and to... You hear what others through the centuries have said about this great text. But then don't just keep it to yourself and think that you've gained all knowledge there. You enter into community and we all share what we are learning from the text. And then God shows up with spiritual gifts of people who teach and bring clarity and discernment and wisdom. So yes, learn to study it for yourself. But I just encourage people, don't study it by yourself. And people are kind of, it's just a Western thing. It's kind of like me, my Bible, and my spiritual life. And that's so counter-Scripture. Scripture really tells us that we need one another. And so I want to, uh, when we tend to be more analytical of a text, it tends to be just for me and about me. 
Problems versus people. Like I mentioned earlier, the information approach says, you know what, there's issues in my life that need to be addressed, and I need to find them in the text. Now, again, I just did this this morning. I was looking at some things about some speech I needed to do in a conflict resolution with someone, and I went to Proverbs, and I looked for verses about how to use the tongue. It's a wise thing to do that. What I did wasn't wrong. There are times to mine the information from the Bible to use it in a setting. But I don't want to be limited by that approach to the text. It's also about people and their hearts and their lives. And so the text is a story, and the story of the Bible helps me relate to people's story. So it's not just information that I glean to use to solve problems, but stuff that should work in me to make me a better person as I relate to people. I realized sometimes in the informational approaches I was doing with that group, it was more about studying Jesus than knowing Jesus, a big mistake I made. And I would just ask it this way, would you rather be dissected or discovered? Would you rather be studied or known, examined or experienced? See, I think sometimes when we come to the text, particularly the Gospels, we, we don't pause long enough to meet Jesus. We just want to hear what he said again and kind of use it in some way. Or we want to kind of take him apart. Why did he say this? Well, I think he was doing that. Okay, it's not all bad. But if we stop there, we'd never meet him. And so Jesus was very frustrated with the religious leaders of his day for doing that consistently to him. And he said, you know, as a matter of fact, the way you look at the Bible, he said, in, he said I think it's in uh, Luke 5, he says, we, you study the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life, but you refuse to come to me and have life. And that's the difference, I think. They wanted to kind of study about God, but they could never meet God. The Pharisees never did that. Actually, that was uh, John 5, 39, if you want that verse, where Jesus said that you diligently study the scriptures because in them you think you have life, but you refuse to come to me. Studying Jesus versus knowing Jesus. Studying Jesus leads to pride. Knowing him leads to humility. Studying God or studying about God will define God, but knowing him will reveal him. Studying God corrects us. Knowing him surrenders us. Studying God will help us judge others. Knowing God convicts us. And so I, I just, I lay that out there too. It's not just about studying. It is about knowing and meeting Jesus. And then finally, do you want to be a master of the text or be mastered by the text? Uh, more of our ancient traditions in Christianity used to use this phrase, to do life under the word. It was an image of being submissive to the word as it mastered us, as we let truth work in our hearts and souls. And I was trained to be a master of the text and that's not a bad thing to learn the Bible and what it says. But we should also be doing life under the word and to be mastered by it. So we ask the question, not just what does it say and how do I understand it, but what is the response of my soul to this truth and in the community in which I live? And so with that as a backdrop, those were two big errors. I was approaching the Bible and how I use truth in a group wrong, and I misunderstood the function of a meeting, that it was a place of community that transcended just an event. And uh, I didn't create an environment for growth with that. And I've had to learn over time that there's other components. And what I'd like to take us through now are some sort of three big ideas about the environment that you can create in a proactive way in a group. 
So having that as a backdrop that, again, there's a, a way we approach truth and a way we approach how we gather, those two things are the initial parts of the environment. So entering into that kind of environment, I want to talk about three things I think Jesus did as he worked with his little community. One of the things I love to do is see how Jesus led his group. And uh, I would go to school on that if you're group people. And a classic text, it's not the only one, but John 13 through 17, we have an extended, and if you have a red letter Bible, you see it's almost all red letters. That's an extended time of Jesus with the 12. And you see him teaching, you see him praying, you see him leading them somewhere. They have some dialogue. It's great insight into what Jesus did when he gathered with his little community. Now, it's not this big prescriptive formula kind of thing, but I think there's insights from it. And I realize that Jesus did a number of things, but he had some big concepts there. And one of them was this idea of the fellowship of the table, that the first thing that Jesus did is he used the table. He called people to the table. The table was a centerpiece, in many ways, of Jesus' both theology and his practice and ministry. And I think we need to rediscover that. I know Randy hinted at that a little bit yesterday and talked a little bit in his session about that. But Jesus did a lot of his ministry around the table. He had dinner with Pharisees. He describes the marriage supper of the Lamb. Jesus shows up to, for, to turn water into wine at a wedding. And so if I am a person who you know, is wealthy or poor or black or white or male, female, female, wherever my background is, whatever my story is, when I come to the table and there's some food or there's that environment that's like that, it says, you know what? We're on equal footing here. And people ask me, what do you think is the best ingredient to make a small group successful? Food. <laughs> and I used to laugh at that and go, ah, but I have discovered that. And it doesn't have to be a big meal, but... I know when we gather on Friday mornings, we get a bunch of guys together before most of them have to head off to work at a certain time. And, it, and the food's a big deal to come in, have some coffee and something to eat and start to talk. We spend probably a third of our time in the kitchen before we move into a circle where we're talking about scripture and praying and doing other things. And I used to, I used to lament that time years ago. I used to think, when are we going to get to the real deal? <laughs> Missing that that was part of the real deal. That those table fellowship moments were the places where hearts started to get tenderized and people's stories came out and where some of their needs were exposed. And so I believe the table truly is that kind of place. So Jesus says, I've, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover meal with you, he said to, the, to his followers, when they entered the upper room. And that upper room community was really built around that table. And in Revelation 3.20, it's an interesting passage. We often use it evangelistically, but, you know, Jesus says, you know, I'm going to stand at the door, I'm going to knock. If you hear my voice and you open the door, I will come in to you and I will do what? I will dine with you. Interesting phrase. You and I will share a meal, a rich fellowship. You will eat of me, my bread, my life. We will share that together. I will eat with you. And so I like to take this down to practical small group level for a moment. And I say, okay, if the table really is important, how do we translate that? Because I've experienced this, as you have in life. In certain ethnic groups, the table really is central. I had a, a very strong Italian friend in, in college, and he, would, uh, he, he, he was just a real a huggy kind of guy. And we traveled across the country and stopped in Chicago. I never knew I'd live there one day. And we stopped at his house on a trip we took across the country one summer, and... Um, Pete invited us to a Sunday dinner at his home. 
And there was just the three of them, his mother, he, uh, his fa- he had lost his father, his mother and his sister, and two, uh, three of us who were traveling. And uh, we came in, sat down at the first course, and his mother brought out, I think it was 30 sausages, each eight inches long, put them out there in a bowl of pasta, and we ate to our heart's content. And we went in the other room, and we waited for dessert, or so I thought. And after 30 minutes, she called and said, time for the second course. We came back in. There was a big bowl of meatballs. I'm not kidding, probably 80. And another bowl of pasta and something else. We did this four times. And then we had dessert. It took four hours. And I just, it was, I was amazed. I said, why does she make so much food? He said, well, first of all, it's convenient because we'll eat this all week long. But my mother likes to do it because she likes to have time around the table and she likes to create a place then where she's free the rest of the week to just bring the food out and heat it so she can engage in conversation and not be in the kitchen the whole time. It was just a value for that family to be together and experience time. There was no drive-through community there. And I think I want to call people back to that in small group life and say, what does the table really look like for you? And then as I unpack the metaphor, I realize there's a lot of kinds of tables. So I want to walk you through some of these and ask you to do a little analysis because we're going to have a little interaction in a minute around this. I want you to assess where's your group in relation to this right now? What kind of table are you experiencing? Is it a kitchen table? The kitchen table is kind of this comfortable place where the family gathers. It's central to food. I don't know about your house. No matter what we do, we can't get them out of the kitchen. Our kitchen cannot hold the people that are in there. It's not a big kitchen, but when we invite company over, they stay in there. They sit on top of things they should not be sitting on. And I say, you know, the, the living room's over here. Why don't we move in there? And I'll, I'll lead the way, and I'll look over my shoulder, and no one's following because the food is still in the kitchen. So we have to take the food and take it into another room to get them to go there because that feels like a safe place to everyone to be around the kitchen. Uh, Maybe that's the feel of your group, regardless of where it meets. Maybe you meet at an office complex, or maybe you meet at a restaurant or in a home or wherever you meet. Does it feel like a kitchen table? Is it kind of that warm, friendly family environment? I find sometimes the conference table is what my group is like. It's where you do. You, You confer. You solve problems and address issues and design strategy for the group. You make decisions about things that are important. And I've been through seasons of that where we are conferencing as a group. I mean, we're really wrestling with a decision about life or about a direction or helping someone process a decision that may be life-changing, someone processing a job change or a move or a crisis related to a family issue. Uh, and that's when we confer. that The table functions that way. Maybe yours is functioning or has from time to time as a negotiation table where we courageously address conflicts and name truth and say, you know what, we need to work through this one. Maybe it's more like a coffee table, not a lot of boundaries, very open and relaxed, kick your feet up, it's cozy, it's warm, there's no limits. Come when you want, leave when you want. That's kind of the feel of your group right now. And that has a season. Maybe it's a seminar table where you really do take this book and say, we've got some profound truth to discuss here. We need to wrestle with it. We need to learn it together. Because I find myself in seasons where I've had the kitchen table where I'll come in and I'll say, hey, guys, you know what we're going to do? We're rolling up our sleeves today. We're diving in here to something that's going to just challenge the socks off of us, and we're going to wrestle with some really difficult truth. And there's a time to do that. And then maybe it's an operating table. Maybe 
The Spirit is using his scalpel on someone's soul or a number of them in the group at one time, and it becomes a place where it's really cathartic. I mean, people's lives are truly being opened up, and they're dealing with sin issues or brokenness or the first time they've told their painful story to someone, and their hearts are right out there in front on the table. So I want you to look at your table for a moment and just reflect on that and talk about it maybe with someone else and say, where are we or where are we headed? And then to reflect on this, is there a kind of table atmosphere we can create that we haven't used before? In other words, maybe you're the kind of leader or host that takes people off into the conference table because you feel pretty safe around the conference table. But maybe it's time to get around the negotiation table. Maybe the 800-pound gorilla is sitting there in the room and no one's named it or looked at it. Now it's time to say, you know what? There's an issue in this group. We need to name it. Ooh, maybe we need to go there. Or maybe you've been there and it's time to sort of kick back. Maybe you've been in an intense period of study and you're saying, you know what we need? We need some gatherings where it's coffee table time, where it's a little looser and a little more open. And it's not so much, did you do the assignment? Did you read the text as it is? How you doing? So check in on that for a few minutes and then I'll call us back together again. Where's your group right now? Okay, uh, you had a chance to check in on that a little bit and reflect and maybe assess. As a leader, I try to keep that in the back of my mind, not to, not to manipulate the group in any way, but to really see, you know, have we gotten into a season where we're stuck? Are we a certain kind of gathering around the table, and could there be new creativity brought to that? So, uh, and also for a reality check, part of a leader's job is to name reality, and if the reality is this is the kind of community we tend to be. Let's talk about that. Is that where we want to stay? Or do we want to experience broader uh, table gatherings? Uh, the next uh, thing uh, related to this is looking at some table manners. Uh, using that metaphor, what are some habits or manners around the table that help create that environment where the table feels like a healing place? And here's five that I'll touch on briefly. Uh, care, uh, creating a culture that says we are for you. We are for you. Uh, we really reach out to all people. I'm there for you regardless of background, regardless of story. I care about you. I like to read some of Brennan Manning in his book, uh, A Glimpse of Jesus. He talks about the kind of table Jesus had. And he says, the phrase, he entertained sinners, suggests that Jesus was often the host and may have rented a hall more than once, as he did at the Last Supper, a larger room. The guest list would include a ragtag parade of donkey peddlers, prostitutes, herdsmen, slumlords, and gamblers. A social climber, Jesus was not. Status seekers in today's society are selective about their dinner guests and make elaborate preparations for people they want to stand well with. They wait anxiously to see if they will be invited in return. Consciously or unconsciously, the power brokers and social gadflies of our day do not underestimate the ritual power of meal sharing. Jesus' sinner guests were well aware that table fellowship entailed more than mere politeness and courtesy. It meant peace, acceptance, reconciliation, fraternity. As Hans Kung notes, for Jesus, this fellowship at table with those whom the devout had written off was not merely the expression of liberal tolerance and humanitarian sentiment. It was the expression of his mission and message, peace and reconciliation for all, without exception, even for the moral failures. The table is an important place to show care and to welcome folks and to express the concern for their lives, their stories, their needs. 
And sometimes that's the more obvious one in groups. Most of us get that. I mean, people come together. It's rare that a group doesn't care about people, though it can happen. It's amazing sometimes what can happen with people. I was just, you know, flying out here, and uh, a woman right behind me had a maybe one-year-old. She had a backpack. She had a bag filled with paraphernalia that I'm so glad our kids are past the age of. Uh, bottles and things people drool into and all kinds of stuff in that bag. She had another, her purse over her shoulder. She had a duffel bag that probably weighed, because I picked it up, 40 pounds. And she had that on her other side, and she was pushing a stroller. I don't know how she did this. And she was moving down the aisle and bumping into people, and they were stepping out of the way. And I don't always do this, so I'm, I'm not doing a pat on the back thing. I just did the, do you need any help? And she looked at me as if to say, oh, you have spoken the words, a wise one. You know, she, she was just dying under the weight of this. And I didn't get to do a lot with her because it was right at the plane, but I took that big, heavy red shoulder bag she had, and she folded up the thing, and we, I just carried a couple things. And I handed it to the flight attendant because I had two bags, and I said, take this. And what's interesting, his initial response was, like, that's not my job. And then I went, she needs your help. And he said, are you with her? What has that got to do with it? You know, <laughs> no, well, I'm not with her, like I'm not her husband or anything, but she needs help. What does it matter? And then he went, oh, oh, oh. And, he, and he took care of it. But it was just interesting to me, and I, and, and I had this reflection, how easy and how simple it would have been for me because a little voice in me was going, you're too busy, get to your seat, you got work to do. And I'm sure everybody else that passed by had the same voice. And in that moment, thankfully, I responded. I, and to my shame, as I sat in my seat afterward, the Holy Spirit went, you need more moments like this because you tend to go past people because you're so busy, so important. And uh, I, I just think even in a circle, we can do that. Someone can need help or, or, or need to be cared for, and we think someone else will do that. Their family will take care of that. That friend will take care of that. Susie sitting over here, she'll take care of that. When the Holy Spirit's saying, no, you show care. So that creates a great environment around the table if we're truly caring for each other. Safety, to create a come-as-you-are culture, as John Burke describes in his book, No Perfect People Allowed. Creating a come-as-you-are culture. That's a safe place. A place where grace rules. We don't want to leave people where they're at. We want to call them to truth and see what God will do with their lives, but it's not up to us to change them. It's up for us to create a safe place where they can meet the living God and his truth. A place of authenticity. Let's be real. Let's put the cards on the table and stop playing games. So James makes this comment about how if you look into the, the word of God, it's like a mirror. It's like a person who looks in a mirror, and if they look in the mirror and see their face, and then they walk away and forget what they look like. It's like looking into the word of God and understanding what it says, and then walking away like you never read it. Um, it and not being real with the truth about who you are and what God is doing and pretending you didn't see that. It would be like saying, no, I don't know what I look like after looking in a mirror. Something warped about that. Now, safety and authenticity go together to create a very open environment around the table. Now, I want to read you a couple comments of people and the things they will say in an environment where safety and authenticity rule. Uh, we had some people fill out some cards uh, in a context, I'm not going to describe at length, that was very safe where they described what they were struggling with. And I'm just going to read them to you uh, with permission and anonymously. But um, we had talked about the prodigal and coming home and the story of the prodigal son, which, as you know, is more about the father than the son. 
about a father who still stands with open arms regardless of what the son has done. The son turns to come home and he says, you know, maybe this God won't take me back, this father, because I've strayed away. Maybe I can come back as a slave. Maybe I can live away from the home and the property where the slaves live and I'll get three square meals a day and at least I'll have a roof over my head. But the father says, no, I'm going to take you back as a son despite what you've done. So we talked about that and in the context of that, I asked people to write down what it meant for them to come home. And in the context of safety and authenticity, these are the kinds of things they said. Lord God, thank you so much for loving me. Thank you for healing me and believing in me and blessing me. Thank you for giving me so many passions for you. Thank you so much for the help you give me. Thank you for teaching me and leading me toward worship. I am so, 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 so sorry for my messing up and messing with porn lately. I am so, so, so sorry I don't spend my time with you. I am so, so, so sorry I don't trust you more. Lead me, Lord. I don't want to lose this kind of feeling. I love you. Amen. Father, I acknowledge my critical judgmental ways, especially with my husband. This has not only separated me from him, but you too. I'm sorry. Forgive me and make me new. Make my heart new. Draw me to you and away from that critical spirit. For the Wednesday and the Wednesday before and all the days, bring me home from the last 11 years. The food, the lack of, and too much of, and the throwing up and the exercising and everything else, bring me back. I am tired of being so sad all the time. I am tired of going to sleep every night crying and alone and dreaming of the man who will kiss me goodnight. I'm tired of feeling unwanted, unloved, and undesirable. Lord, I need you to be enough. I'm not ready to believe in more than enough. I just want even barely enough. Father, meet me in my addiction of loving sweet foods and snacks and the taste of alcohol more than your eternal gift. And then finally this one. Um, Dear Abba, I'm so tired, tired of others' demands, but mostly the demands, the incessant demands I put on myself. Can I come home? Can I come home to your place of peace and rest? All I have found here is angst and heartache, and I'm not strong enough. I am so tired. I look over my shoulder and see you, arms outstretched. I don't have anything to give. Let's rest, love, your daughter. That's what happens in safe community. People feel open to share stuff they're challenged with because they'll be met with grace. They can be authentic because they'll be met with grace and truth. But they're not going to get shamed and beat up for struggling with sin and having passions and having failure. Growth is another component of the table where we urge and encourage one another to take steps forward. We spur one another on to love and good deeds, as was mentioned earlier today in one of the sessions. And then help, we offer our resources. That's such a neat thing to watch people show up with resources, financial and other. And that's the real test of me of some communities. Will they put their money where their mouth is? It's amazing to watch a group of people actually part with that which the world says is our treasure and to give it to people who need that kind of help. And I've experienced so much of this. I know many of you have. We just have to be reminded of what this kind of help means. It can be little things. Help with someone this season on their taxes. Help with someone cleaning out a part of their house. We had a flood in our basement 
Well, I was in uh, away speaking uh, out, of, out of the States, actually the continental U.S., and we got a phone call at 4 o'clock in the morning from an insurance person mind, asking us about the water damage to our basement. And I was like, excuse me? And the person who was house-sitting for us had called them to tell them of the disaster. So it was a beautiful moment. And uh, I watched, as we could not get home, a whole neighborhood community gather around and empty stuff out of the basement and dry things out and call insurance people and set up everything. I mean, they took care of a real mess. Somebody sent me an email and said, we're kind of glad you're not here. <laughs> um, but you know what? Don't worry. Enjoy the time you have. You'll have enough to deal with when you get home. But we've got the bases covered for you. I mean, sometimes help in that kind of situation is just, it's everything. So that's, a good, that's some good table manners. So I just ask you, look around your table. How are the table manners? And if these are values or practices within themselves around the table, I would ask you to look at those. And maybe this is a great group discussion and say, hey, here's five things, or you pick three. And say, how are we doing? How are we in the authenticity area? How are we in the caregiving and the help showing area? How are we doing with urging each other toward growth? And is this a safe group? I remember a guy in our group said, you know what I'd like to have? I want a well-lit group. I said, what's that? He said, a group where we can shine the light of truth on it, and that's okay. I want it to be well-lit. You don't have to hide secrets and stuff in the darkness. We can show up as we truly are and watch God work on our lives. I'd love to have a group like that someday. Can we move toward that? And it was a phrase that stuck with me, a well-lit group, very biblical kind of phrase. And so that's some things around the table. The second uh, sort of big idea Jesus had in the upper room and was a part of his ministry was the ministry of the towel. Now, these three words that begin with T are all in the text. We're going to talk about table, towel, and truth. And since we're at Saddleback, I thought I'd do that so we'd have the three T's. Just having a little fun. Uh, table, towel, and truth. I really think that's the way Jesus sort of worked. Call people to the table, put on a towel, served them, and spoke truth and practiced it. So in this whole table area, I want to show you something first and then let the values sort of speak for themselves. I have a video clip I'd like to show you. It's some people who decided as a group they were going to pick up the towel together. And uh, this is a, it, what's happening in some of our neighborhood communities. So you're going to hear some neighborhood kinds of conversation going on. But this is a leader telling their story, actually a coach of some leaders, on how both their group and a group they were coaching got involved in a tragedy that was taking place in the neighborhood and decided to show up in someone's life. And the power of the towel and how that can transform people. Let's watch this clip for a few minutes. I was um, supposed to go do something that really didn't fit into my agenda. I just really was not sure that I was supposed to do this, or maybe I was even afraid to do it. Uh, my friend Dorothy, her brother-in-law, Dan, was diagnosed with a form of leukemia. Mm. And in a two-month span of time, their four-month-old baby was hospitalized. They had Dan's diagnosis. They were, he lost his job and therefore the medical insurance and their home was in danger of being foreclosed. So she had thought of writing a letter and asking our neighborhood to support them in a variety of different ways. 
And basically my response to her was just, just write the letter and just see what God does. I enclosed in the note, or in the letter, I added a little portion that said, even if you can't um, give a gift or donate to the family at this time, would you please fill out an index card just with a message of hope for the family and sign it. And then we'll put them in a blessing book and give it to the family with any gifts that we receive. Some of the women from my small group went to my neighbor Dorothy's home to give her the gifts from the neighborhood. And um, we had the blessing book. And inside the book, we wrote a little message to the family. Um, Dan and Sue were not believers. We wrote in the front, Dear Dan and Sue, God speaks to us in three ways through his word, through the Holy Spirit, and through other Christians. This is a gift from God. Merry Christmas. I opened up the envelope, and uh, it was just a staggering amount of money that the neighborhood had collected. And there was also a big blanket in there that uh, my neighbor had made. And in this big bag that they had brought were all kinds of wrapped Christmas presents for the kids. And it was just unbelievable, just a mind-boggling thing. And they had a book that everyone who brought a donation of any kind had uh, written just on a little card a prayer, a blessing, uh, something. It was a few days after Christmas then that Nick and Dorothy, my neighbors, went to visit Dan and Sue and they talked with them and Dan told them that he knew his life was going to be different because he couldn't believe there were all these people that cared about him that he didn't know. He went, it was several days after Dan and Sue had received this gift from the neighborhood. And my husband walked over and talked to Dan. We prayed in their, uh, in their living room together after a uh, good long conversation. And um, Dan was really ready to have God come into his heart. It was, it was a really neat thing to just know that our neighborhood had somehow, and, and ultimately our small group, had touched the lives of these people. And it was shortly after that time period that Dan went in for a bone marrow transplant to Loyola down in Chicago. So he was in the hospital in the beginning of February and started the process and um, just, you know, horrendously ill and very, very sick. And in through February and into March, uh, or towards the end of June, he went back into the hospital and just kept getting worse and worse and worse. And in July, July 10th, he had a minor heart attack because his body was just beginning to fill with fluids and everything was shutting down. And they had to put him on a ventilator. And he looked at my sister and he said, the Lord is here with us, so it's going to be okay. And uh, we walked out of the room, and we were able to come back in about four. And uh, he was unconscious and just, you know, laying there, letting the machine breathe for him. And he just kept, about four o'clock, sort of having heart attack after heart attack. And he died at 6.30 on July 11th. Dan's with Christ because people went and did things to help him. It was the community around here that did things that, to this day, I don't understand. I was really resistant to the idea in the beginning. Maybe I was afraid that people would be upset that we were asking for money. Um, and I knew that my life was crazy. It really um, changed my heart. I just, I just at one point said, oh, you know, whatever you want, God. And it just unfolded into this huge event. Um, affecting their life in a way that I never even dreamed. We need to love each other. And uh, when you hear it, when it tugs at you, do something because you just don't know. And I can't tell you how wonderful the gift is when you actually know the ending.
I know you have lots of stories like that too. They're powerful stories. And it reminds us of just this, put a towel over your arm, begin to serve. And here's some things I see from that story. It's just kind of sort of, what are towel habits? Because Jesus did this. He picked up a towel. He created this humble place, a place of humility, and uh, washed the disciples' feet. And it was a metaphor for his servant spirit. Matter of fact, Philippians says that, in some translations it says that although he was God, he took the form of a servant. Greek scholars have looked at that and said, you know, it can just as easily be translated because. And that our tendency might be to have translated although. But rather it might, it might supposed to read that because he was God, he took the form of a servant. And that rings so true with the character of Jesus. And so what are some towel habits? And having an other's mindset. This, friends, is just, you know, it's something we always have to push for in such an individualistic culture. Having an other's mindset. Uh, Another flight story. This was a year or two ago. I was on an airplane. It was obvious everyone was freezing. We started to take off, and, you know, I travel a lot, so you have these kind of interesting situations. And the airline industry is a service industry. And 95% of the time, there's amazing people doing, you know, incredible, heroic service there. And so I want to affirm that. And that's why the odd ones really stick out to me, and you wonder how they survive. Because in a service industry, hotel, you know, if you're staying in a hotel, you know, if they treat you crummy, you're not coming back. I mean, they're service industries. So we're on the plane, and people, it's taking off, and everybody's reaching up and turning off their blowers. And it's still blowing because it's coming in from the main system, and the temperature's dropping 5, 6, 7, 8, 10 degrees. Then you see people getting jackets and putting them on, and you see people grabbing blankets. There aren't that many. They're fighting over them, you know? And so the a flight attendant walks next to us, comes down the aisle with a serving thing, and we're just all freezing. And so I said, uh, it's just really cold in here. And she said, I'm okay. <laughs> That's exactly what she said. And I tried to be, you know, keep my cool, as I, I was. Uh, and I said, uh, you have a sweater on, and, uh, you, you know, you have long sleeves. There's a lot of us with short sleeves, and I'm, I just couldn't help but notice a lot of people putting blankets on. I just thought maybe it was getting a little cool. I mean, this is what happened. She just looked at me like, what's your problem? And then said, well, if I get a minute, I'll see if I can check in on it. Now, I just wondered how that happened because so many, you know, flight attendants and folks are so service-oriented. Yes, how can I help you, you know? But that kind of stuff stands out so much. And then I realize, again, in my life, I look and go, do I have another's mindset when I show up to my group or am I showing up going, what can this do for me today? How do I need to grow today? What issue can it solve in my life? I wonder if people will care about me. Maybe I'll get to share a lot today. Or do I walk in and say, God, what are you doing in this circle and help me to be others-focused? What is the need I can meet? What is the prayer I can pray? Uh, and it's a growth edge for me, and it's a discipline that we have to take. And it does stand out when you are or are not others-minded. Listening attentively. I remember being confronted about this myself, sitting across the table from an attorney whom I developed a relationship with. We got together weekly to have a lunch or a breakfast and just pray for each other and be encouraging and challenge each other to grow. And in the midst of one of those, he said, hey, I just got to speak some truth to you. A lot of times when I'm sitting across the table from you, you're looking around the restaurant while I talk. And it says to me, you don't give a rip about what I'm saying right now. It's, you're distracted. And I said, you know, I love you. I care about you, but... That happens more than I'd like to admit and probably more than you know. And that was a tough moment. I have to confess, I hated the guy for about 24 hours. It's because he was truthful. And the Holy Spirit's whispering, he's right, he's right. And so there's this thing in community that happens and in relationship where you realize 
the way we serve others sometimes isn't doing something with our hands. It's being attentive. It's listening. It's looking someone in the eye and asking them a question. Tell me more about that. So really, that happened to you? Why was that exciting for you? Man, tell the whole group that story. That's incredible. To be attentive to someone is a way of serving them. Identify needs in your group, uh, and they'll be popping up all over, as I mentioned. One thing I served, or I noticed in this video, and I noticed in groups, take risks. I like when the woman said, you know, Carol goes, and so, you know, it was a little scary for me, but I decided to do this. Take a risk. Serve someone in some way. Risk will always challenge you to grow. To place yourself in uncomfortable situations is what spiritually forms people. That's why serving is so central to spiritual formation. It's not like we do discipleship and we serve. No, discipleship and serving go hand in hand. We have to remind ourselves of that. First time I had a chance to speak, I was new in seminary, I was going to school there uh, in Pennsylvania, and I was involved with a little local church part-time, and doing some other odd jobs, and someone said, hey, I know you've been learning to do a little speaking in school, would you like to use your newfound whatever, or try it out, but I got a gig for you, a speaking gig, Uh, okay, what is it, I'd never done one of these, I taught a Sunday school class at church, and all, he says, well, it's speaking to some folks in a kind of a care home, I mean, it's in kind of a it's just some teens in a situation where they need some extra care and support. It was a quick phone call. Said, oh, yeah, I'll do that. So the day before, I call and go, can you give me a closer snapshot of this? It was right around Valentine's Day. He says, oh, yeah, I meant to tell you, one of the reasons we wanted you to speak is we wanted you to speak on the topic of love. And you're going to run into about, there's about 13 gals in this class. They're all about age 15 and 16, and they average seven to eight months pregnant and have no husbands. And I said, do you have another gig? Uh, that I could do. I have to tell you, I put down the phone and thought, what have I got to say to these people? Some young whippersnapper seminary guy who doesn't know their pain. I'm going to walk into a room, and I did. I walked into that room, and here was a bunch of young pregnant gals who had no husbands, and they looked at me like this. And the subject was love. And you could see they were going, yeah, 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 tell me about love. Been there, tried that. And I have to tell you, I I don't remember what I said, but I do remember kind of putting my notes aside once I got there and just trying to identify with them and connect with them and encourage them. But it was a stretch to realize I've got a huge chasm to come across here. And if you had given me a Sunday school class to teach on some doctrine, I would have gone, probably walked in and felt really confident. This was a humbling experience and very risky for me and I think for them too. And it's just those kinds of environments stretch us and change us. And so when you're sitting there in your circle or you see a need outside your circle and you wonder, should I really challenge the group to go meet that need? No, they might feel like I'm coming on a little strong. Challenge them. Hey, let's roll up our sleeves and go do this some weekend. What are you kidding? Yeah, let's do it. And see what God does. Take some risks. And then help people use their gifts in ways that that can be just deployed for service. And there's been a lot of talk around that this uh, session, and I won't go into that in any detail. The third component I think Jesus called people to, as I mentioned, not just to the fellowship of the table or the ministry of the towel, but to practice and live out the truth. It was a big value for Jesus. If the table provides a healing place and the towel creates a humble environment, I think the truth truly produces a holy place. The truth creates a holy place. 
In the Old Testament, uh, wasn't that the psalm that says, Lord, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them lead me to your holy hill. God's light and his truth always lead you to a holy place. And those holy places are dangerous places. Burning bush encounters can be dangerous places. I like to listen to Erwin McManus, like many of you. I love his teaching. It's provocative and it's challenging. He came to Willow Creek and taught, and he said, you know, Paul went to some very dangerous places in his ministry, but none of them were dangerous until he got there. Because when Paul showed up, he created all kinds of havoc. Everything was going pretty good until Paul showed up in Ephesus. He started preaching about the one true God, and the idol makers had a fit because people were turning from idols to the one true God, and they were losing business. So they tried to kill him. In another setting, they had to leave him out through the wall in Jerusalem to get him out of the way because people were going to kill him. So everywhere Paul went, he created dust and dirt and havoc. In Acts 9, you ever read his conversion story? It's an amazing story. I shared it with some folks who might have been here from Saddleback a few weeks ago. But when you look at Acts 9 and you see how Paul came to faith and you see what happened initially and how he went out and started sharing his faith and the disciples were very concerned and that's where they had to sort of cover for him a few places. And it says Paul was active and, you know, running around. The disciples were worried and they had to let him out of the wall and, you know, all this stuff. And it says, finally, the disciples put Paul... They sent him back to Tarsus. And it says, and the church experienced a season of rest. <laughs> you read, it's exactly what it says. It's like when Paul left town, the church went, Whew. what was that? What was that that just came through? I don't know, but it was wild. It was crazy. I can't imagine him in his younger days. Uh, what a character. But there's something about uh, truth when we start to name it, proclaim it, and practice it that creates a, a dangerous place in a good kind of way. You know, the forces of evil don't like truth at work. Truth discussed, truth meditated on, truth debated, it's okay. Truth practiced, uh-oh, got a problem. So let's look at some truth training. And it truly is training. John Ortberg was great around Willow Creek. He would use this phrase over and over. There's a difference between training and trying. You can try to run a marathon. You can train to run a marathon. You can try to practice truth, or you can train to practice truth. And when you train, you ask for wisdom, and you say, God, today I will try to take a step out today, and I will actually practice what you are talking about. I will give. I will share. I will love. And I will take actual steps. And I may fail, but I'm going to begin a training program that, that says I will do certain activities. I will immerse myself in scripture. I will devote myself to prayer. I will connect with a community. I will open my life up. And I will do that on a regular basis because I want to learn to be a person who can put the truth into practice and not just talk about it. So some obvious ones are to obey scripture. Just flat out obey it. Not always easy to do. I mean, some of this stuff is like, I get this, Bill. But you know what it's like in those moments? Now, here I am, I'm on the staff of this great church, Willow Creek. We have a reputation in our community. I was with State Farm Insurance, still am. Not a plug, just reality. <laughs> I had two fender benders within about two days of each other, both my fault. Both very close to one another on my car. And I called State Farm, this is 15 years ago. I picked up the phone and called State Farm and said, I've had an accident. And there's been a collision, and I need to have someone come out and look at the car. And I talked to the guy, and I said, you know, it's my fault. I kind of backed into someone as they were backing up. It was my fault. 
And I hung up the phone, and the Holy Spirit was all over me. <laughs> there was not an accident. There were two accidents. And someone probably real discerning from their industry would figure that out, but that wasn't the point. Uh, it was just, I, since they were so close on the car, I was thinking, you know, two for one. And, and here's what my mind started to do. Yours probably does this, maybe. You've paid into this group for years. <laughs> they owe you. It's just a claim. It's just a deductible. They're going to have to do the same amount of work on this side as that, and it's just a few more brush strokes of pain. And Bill, was it one accident or two? Why do you keep asking that question? So I had picked up the phone, and in a moment of humiliation, not humility, <laughs> said, uh, I need to correct my story. And I said, I'm really sorry. I don't want to embarrass me or my church or anything else. I said, you know me. I said, I, I just lied to you a few minutes ago. And I told him. And he said, well, I appreciate that. And whacked me with another claim. <laughs> cost me about, it probably cost me about three or $400 because of back-to-back -back accidents. I don't know what it actually cost, but that, that, that cost was nothing, right? The cost of my soul was another issue. And so sometimes obeying scripture, as easy as some of these things are, and they sound really like, yeah, I get that. In those moments where particularly money is involved, tithing, oh, yeah, but, I mean, it's, it's tax season, God. I may get hit with a big one. Yep, you might. I mean, it's just, just obey. Trust me. Wonderful song, trust and obey. Love to sing it, hate to live it. I mean, I think I'm growing. I hope I'm growing a little where I'm learning to love to live it, but the carnal side of me says, do it your way. Confess weakness. This is a great practice of the truth, to actually say, you know, like Paul did, I'm well content with weakness, with insult, with persecution, with distress, because when I'm weak, you're strong. God's strong in me. And I'd love to read that passage, but again, it's another thing to name it in front of a group of people and say, you know, I'm weak. I need your help. Jesus said that we need to turn and repent and become like children. That word repent means to turn. Unless you turn and become like a child, he says, you can't grow. And part of becoming like a child is to name simplistic kind of child-level realities. I am weak. I need help. I need help. Now, here's the reason this really builds community in a group. Um, if I walk into a small group and I say this, hey, <laughs> amazing week. I just got a 10 grand bonus from work. They moved me to a new corner office. You should see the desk. I have an awesome view. My kids' reports came in from school, straight A's across the board. I got Harvard calling. Anyway, full scholarship. And um, now we're about to go on a Hawaii vacation, and somebody's footing the bill for it. Can you believe it? Because there's a little business deal tied into it. It's not going to cost me a dime. How are you guys doing? <laughs> now, I'm not so sure, though I hope they're mature enough to celebrate my success, that that's going to draw them to me. It's just, you know, Parker Palmer says there's something about our weakness and our frailty and our brokenness that draws us together in community but that our pride or our success or, you know, even the good things, I mean, it doesn't mean we shouldn't share them, but that's just not the kind of stuff that people feel drawn to because they can't identify with that. But when you say, I'm weak, can't handle this temptation, it keeps coming at me, and if I'm in a vulnerable situation, I'm going to give in again. Because five other people in that circle go, I know exactly what you're talking about. 
Because I sit there too, and that temptation comes, and I go, uh, it just eats at me. And you've created a bond then where together in community you can face sin and trial and temptation together because you've formed this bond as you practice truth by saying, I will confess the truth, and that is, I'm weak. I admit wrongdoing. That's a thing we should all say in our group. We try to do that as a community. We will admit wrongdoing. I just respect this guy in our group who just, uh, he's a CEO of about a $450 million company. And he had a subordinate in another state at a location. And he went in and he just blasted the guy about his performance. And he was telling us this story. And he said, I remember I walked out of the room and I said, what have I just done? I have just destroyed this man's soul with my words. And he said, it took me a little while, but after about an hour, I called him on the phone. I said, let's go, come downstairs to the eating area. Let's have a cup of coffee. And he said, the guy came like, oh, no, he's going to wail on me again. And he said, I just stood there for 15 minutes and apologized to him. And I thought, that took such courage. Because the guy had done things that required him to kind of be forceful with him and say, you know, you're really messing up here. But the way he had done it was he just tore the guy down. And to see a person who has great authority, who could just fire the guy and hire someone he'd rather work with, come down and say, I'm the one who did wrong here. Such a powerful thing. And to admit wrongdoing in a community opens the door for others to do that in a way that God's redemptive grace can cleanse that sin and help us all grow. Extend forgiveness to one another. Um, you know, Henry Nouwen said that when you do this, you allow the other person not to be God. Love that phrase. They're not perfect. How many of you know David Bradley? Anybody know David Bradley? Know of him? He just retired from IBM a few years ago. You're real glad that David Bradley lives and worked for IBM because David Bradley invented Control-Alt-Delete. Yeah, a lot of you are like, oh, David, you're the man. How many times have you been in a situation, depending on your computer and what you use, but... Control-Alt-Delete is like, thank you very much. I remember, I wish I had that. I did a paper in seminary. as a Greek exegesis paper. You know, it's a big complicated thing in the Greek text. And I had not done certain things I should have been doing with the computer, and it, I needed a Control-Alt-Delete. I lost the whole three and a half weeks of work. Had to start over again. The old dog ate my thing, you know. It was, this was like the, the computer ate my thing. Uh, but uh, the idea of being able to reboot... <laughs> There's something about forgiveness that says, can we reboot? It's just reboot, get the thing back up again and start like we didn't have that problem. It's not ignoring the sin or any of that. It's just saying, I forgive you. I truly do. I love you and I forgive you. The power that that has, the way that when we practice the truth by extending forgiveness, it has great power. Nowen writes this in his book, In the Name of Jesus, which is a book about leadership. Again, I recommend it, In the Name of Jesus by Henry Nowen. says, it's precisely the men and women who are dedicated to spiritual leadership who are easily subject to very raw carnality. The reason for this is that they do not know how to live the truth of the incarnation. They separate themselves from their own concrete community, try to deal with their needs by ignoring them or satisfying them in distant and anonymous places and then experience an increasing split between their own most private inner world and the good news that they announce. When spirituality becomes spiritualization, life in the body becomes carnality. When ministers live their ministry mostly in their heads, 
and relate to the gospel as a set of valuable ideas to be announced, the body quickly takes revenge by screaming loudly for affection and intimacy. Christian leaders are called to live the incarnation, that is, to live in the body, not only in their own bodies, but also in the corporate body of the community and to discover there the presence of the Holy Spirit. Confession and forgiveness are precisely the disciplines by which spiritualization and carnality can be avoided and true incarnation lived out. Through confession, the dark powers are taken out of their carnal isolation, brought into the light, and made visible to the community. Through forgiveness, they are disarmed and dispelled, and a new integration between body and spirit is made possible. Very healing. Practice the truth in your little communities with forgiveness, confession of what's wrong, and then express convictions. It's okay to express convictions. When we extend grace and we tell people we accept them for who they are and all that as they show up, we're not saying we don't have convictions about truth and about right and wrong. So we can stand on that truth. That's part of practicing the truth as well. And so that's, that's kind of what I wanted to leave you today, to remember a couple big ideas. First, we're environmentalists. This environment of how we view this gathering called a meeting. You know, is it just a meeting or is it a catalyst to a community? And then how we work with the truth in a group. Is it purely for information or do we lean too strongly that way? Or are we really asking of it to change us and shape us? That's that one part. And then to do some things around table town truth and think, okay, how do I call people or invite them to the table in a way that's fresh and new and engaging? How do we encourage one another to put a towel over our arm? And how do we practice this truth that we love to learn and read and study and pray through? And I think if you work around those, that's about the best you can do is say, God, here's, here's my side of it. If you was, I'm, I'm doing my best with others who lead in this small group to create an environment and we invite you to show up and have your way. We don't control it. We simply make invitations into this environment. Jesus did that, and at John 13, he said, you know, do as I've done. Do exactly as I've done. And first he did it, actually, and then in John 17, and in, at the end of John 13 as well, he says, just do what I do. Practice what I practice. And so uh, I wanted to emulate Jesus in that way. Uh, what it looks like in reality in my little community is about a guy named Roger. Roger uh, says some amazing things, and I, it's been amazing to see what the table towel truth sort of thing has done in his life and in his family. Uh, I asked people about a year and a half ago. I had led a number of groups. I moved into a new neighborhood in the last few years. I've gotten to know people there. A group I was a part of had ended, and so in our new neighborhood strategy, I got to know people in the neighborhood. Some of them attended Willow, some did not, and uh, I eventually put a group together. And I remember asking, in this case it was a men's group, I asked these six guys, do you want to get in a group? And the answers were pretty quick. Yeah, because we built some relationship. It was, hey, you know, why don't we meet, to, meet together once a week and encourage each other and pray and talk about God? And they were like, yeah, let's do that. And so uh, a couple weeks later we were having breakfast and I said, I need to ask you why you said yes. When I said, would you like to be in a group, why would you say yes? And I went around the circle. And John, who's my stay-at-home dad, in the group said, I wanted adult conversation. <laughs> you, uh, mostly women would understand that more than some guys here, but uh, John's just very active in our community, uh, on boards and stuff, but a few years back, uh, he and his wife both working, her career sort of took off financially and his was sort of dieseling, and when they had another child decided he would stay home, and 
Uh, he's been a great guy and a great servant to the neighborhood and to our families and just, just a neat guy. He's our real down-to-earth kind of guy. John prays like this. Um, God, uh, this is John. Uh, he's, a, he's a pretty new believer. He said, God, this is John. And uh, one time he said this. I know uh, when you look down on our group here, you see a can of mixed nuts. And uh, that's what we are. And very sincere, just like a Peter kind of guy, you know. So there's John and, uh, you know, uh, Al talked about needing a safe place. He had come to faith through basically an AA kind of group where he really needed grace. His wife had uh, gone from a top position in a corporation to within three years becoming a gutter drunk. And he had to live through and deal with all that. And, and at the time that she left the home, he had three, five, seven, nine, and 11-year-old at home and had to come and kind of put that back together again. And uh, he needed to be in a kind of an Al-Anon kind of group because of what he was dealing with with his wife and trying to process all this. And through that came to faith and uh, learned that he said, I'm in a group because groups are safe. In his experience, groups are safe places. And I could go around and around the table, but there's Roger. Roger says, I'm here because even though I don't believe, you treat me like I belong. That was a powerful statement to me. It's the second week of our meeting. He said, you guys, you treat me like I'm one of your family, even though I don't believe what you believe. And through the the towel ministry, we've been able to serve him by providing books for him to read and just being alongside his family. Had a chance to baptize his wife and three children and said, Roger, when's your time going to happen? And it just was fun kind of challenging him that way. But I've been able to serve his family. He asked me to baptize them when they were ready. He said, could you be the one that does it? And I said, sure, I'd love to. It was just a way to serve him. And our group has served him, and he served our group. He's a Motorola engineer, and he's fixing some stuff at my house around computers and stuff. So we serve each other. And then the truth issue. He was sitting at our church just a few weeks ago. We provide what we call alternative communion, meaning people that missed our communion service, which we don't have every week. We try to have it pretty frequently. Uh, you know, the elements are out, and there's, there are people to guide people through communion, even though it's not done formally in the service. We say, if you missed this week, you know, come forward. We have a section over here, like you would do over here maybe, and we'd have people to help, help you take communion. And he showed up there with his wife and three kids, and they were all sitting together. And I noticed he was taking communion, so I went and I sat next to him, and I just waited till he was done, and I was doing the same. I had traveled that week and was not there for service, so I took the bread in the cup, and we were there together. And so after a few minutes of prayerfulness and quiet, I just turned and said, uh, I have to ask you a question. Why did you, what, what's going on in your mind when you take the cup and eat the bread? Because I was curious. He said, well, look down the aisle. I'm just so thankful. Look at this family. So if, to him, it was an act of saying, thank you, God, for what you've done to my family. It's interesting. And I said, well, you know, Roger, and I did this very subtly. I'm condensing. I said, you know, Roger, most people that are taking this right now are recognizing Christ's redemptive work on the cross, stuff we've talked about, and we went real quickly over some of the components of that and what that meant about salvation and his relationship to be reconnected with God through Christ and, again, that kind of stuff. And I said, it doesn't sound like you're quite there yet. And he said, I'm not quite there yet. And I said, what's holding you back? He said, I got two things. Is the Bible from God, do I have to believe that? Second, what about my Muslim and Jewish friends at Motorola? They're really good people. Why are we better than them? Great questions, not 10-second answers. But it was a chance to practice truth by listening to him, asking follow-up questions about why why that was important to him, not to just go, oh, I got some verses for you that will clear that up, Raj. 
oh, some of that was in the conversation. I answered. We, we interacted. But he needed to know that I cared. And, and the reason I knew that he knew that I cared was he turned and said, can I ask you this? Do you ever have doubts? Now, in that moment, I knew the future of our conversation rested on that. And I said, of course I have doubts. I mean, there are certain things I don't have any doubt about, but I always have times where I go, God, I just read how you interacted with a group of people here, and I just don't get it. And I said, but here's one thing I don't have a doubt about, the nature of God. I said, I can't answer all the questions that might be out there and answer them well maybe for you. I don't know. There's things that are just hard to answer. I mean, there's answers for what he asked, but I mean, there's some big questions out there. I said, but I've watched God in people's lives and in my life over the last many years, and I have found them to be true and faithful in every single situation. And then I look at this book, and I look at people's stories about their interaction with God from over 40 different authors, over three different continents, over 1,500 different years, and kings and poets and priests and fishermen, and they all say the same thing about his nature and his character. And so I feel very strong about this God who I've come to know and love. But as to being able to answer every question that comes up, I don't, I don't feel like I always have that ready at my fingertips. But he just, it was just that moment to go another step further. And I realized that conversation was possible because every Friday Roger sits in a circle where we try to be the table, we try to put the towel on, and we try to live, talk, and practice the truth. And that will lead to those kinds of conversations for you. And I trust that they will be transformational in people's lives. Uh, I've got five minutes, so we're early. And you can actually, if you want to slip out, you can. But I'd like to take, if we can, I know it's a big group, if there's a couple questions about this environment, you say, hey, can you clarify this or a quick question? We'll do that for two or three and let you go a minute early into the sunshine. Those of you from the area, you don't care. The rest of us, we do. So I understand that. So. Any questions real quick if there's something? Otherwise, I'll hang around for a few minutes and you can come up. Yes, sir. You got to yell. Yeah, what do you do at your first meeting? Yeah. Yeah, real quick, uh, I'll answer this and I'll let you go. At a, at a gathering, a first meeting maybe of a group or you have a bunch of new people show up, it's highly relational, highly social in the sense of connecting. It's beginning to ask people a little bit about their story, like I did. I did this in the second, but in the first meeting, I also asked, tell me a little bit about what you're looking for from this group. Because if they said, yes, I want to be a part of it, I'm interested in what they hope to achieve through it. Is there a goal they want to achieve? Is there a relationship they want to build? Do they want to know more about God? Why are they here? And I begin that as a starting place. And maybe read a scripture that defines what is community about. Something from Acts, something from Ephesians, something that says, you know, we're here together to help build each other up. That's the goal of this community. And begin to unpack that a little bit. That would be my first meeting. Some food, some storytelling, getting to know what people expect from the group and what they also expect to bring to the group and start that kind of conversation. Hey, thanks, folks. God bless and have a great rest of your day. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And to dive in deeper, get more resources, or join the Small Group Network, just head over to smallgroupnetwork.com.